0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, if you have your Bible open to a Revelation, we won't get to the text right away because I want to give you a little background. Let's start with some general observations. And I want to start with Genesis because Genesis chapter 1 and 3 are almost parallel to Revelation 20 to 22. It's a study I'm going to show you a little snapshot of. But it's remarkable to step back on this big book and say it begins and ends with a connective tissue that's impossible to ignore, unless, of course, you don't spend a little time studying it. It's a remarkable comparison and contrast. In fact, sometimes it's called the New Genesis, those sections of Revelation chapter 20, particularly 21 and 22. Sometimes it's called the apocalypse or apocalyptic literature. Johannes is the name for John. It's technically not John's revelation. It's technically the revelation that John was given about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Not to cut too fine a point on it, but that is really what this book is about. When you open this book it's long, it's complex, it's uh, intriguing, it's weird, it causes us to have a lot of questions, and for that reason many people are off-put by this book. Actually it's very well-ordered, it's very clearly outlined, and what we don't understand about it could be put in a very small pile compared to what we do understand about it. And that's what I hope to show you a little bit today. Some of you know what's the, called the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus is speaking on the Mount of Olives. You find that in two Gospels, Matthew 24:25 and in Luke 14, and these Luke 21. And these passages, Jesus gives a specific address. If you have a red-letter Bible and you open it up, it's real easy to see what Jesus said in this so-called Olivet Discourse it parallels Revelation in a chilling way. So now we've got Genesis 1, 2, and 3 paralleling the end chapters of our book. We've got the Gospel accounts recording this Olivet Discourse, and these passages show you an integration of Scripture. Uh, to Think about 66 individual books. They didn't blow up in a library. It wasn't after a fire and they got what was left and glued it together. There was an orchestration of God the Father from eternity past to have the big A author God use the little A author man to put this text together. We call it the canon of Scripture. And this book has more in alignment, more agreement than it does not. And that is one of the reasons it remains one of the best-selling books of all time. It won't be rated in those lists because they don't care about it. It is the most sought-after book in prisons. It is a book of word, the Word of God in print that we can read and access anywhere we go. Revelation does something else that no other New Testament book does. It calls on the Old Testament in such a volume it's hard to quantify it all. He's going to refer specifically to Daniel, to Ezekiel, to the Psalter, some of the Psalms in this text. He's going to give an overview that integrates Old Testament prophecy about times and about this Messiah in such a way that that's what spellbinds those of us who read this book. Uh, One commentator writes Jesus in his Olivet Discourse was clearly anticipating what he was to show John in much greater detail more than six decades later on the island of Patmos. So the Olivet discourse is given in a context to a group of people, and this context saying, John didn't have any idea what was going to happen when he's sent off to this Patmos island, which would not be necessarily a pleasant experience. I mean, it is a Greek isle, but in that day he's basically imprisoned, and he's going to write this letter that we have at the end of our Bible, Genesis one to three and Revelation twenty to twenty-two. Let me just show you a couple of things. We have in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In Revelation, we have, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, we have the darkness came and he called it night. In Revelation, there will be no night. In chapter 1, he in Genesis 1, God made two great lights. In Revelation 21, the city had no need of the sun of the moon. Satan appears as a deceiver in Genesis chapter 3. Satan disappears forever in Revelation 20. We have a garden which sin or defilement came and ruined the garden. In Revelation we're shown a city into which there will be no defilement, no sin. In Genesis 3 we walked with God until a man was interrupted by his sin. In Revelation the walk with God will be resumed and unhindered. And on it goes. In chapter 3 we have the triumph of the serpent in Genesis 3, and in Revelation we have the destruction of the serpent and the triumph of the lamb. And on and on this little chart goes. And to show you this comparison and contrast with what we call the new Genesis. Remarkable bookends. And again as I look at this, uh, and when I officiate a wedding I will often talk about Genesis Ephesians and Revelation. And I will say the Scripture opens with a wedding, it has story and theology and explanation about a wedding, and it ends with a wedding. And I find it striking that the one quote covenant close quote that God gives man to keep. You know He doesn't tell you to keep your salvation He does that. He tells you to keep your marriage. That's the one covenant He asks you to keep. Because it's illustrative of what we read in Revelation about the bride of Christ and the groom. No spot, no wrinkle nor any such thing. That's not just the Western tradition for wedding dress industry, that's a tradition based on Scripture that He's going to present to Himself the church in all her glory. No spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing. So all this imagery even that's sewn into our wedding ceremony goes back to Genesis, The explanations of story, theology, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter, and then culminates in this picture of the ultimate wedding and the ultimate feast in the end of time. There are significant numbers of Old Testament references. Let me just give you some high points here. John references again very specifically Exodus, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Zechariah. But some commentators have done some good homework. And let's say there's 404 verses in this Revelation text we called no S by the way, Revelation singular. Uh, In this text we have between 240 and 278 either specific or alluded references to the Old Testament. Think about that, more than half of the book refers to the Old Testament. Now why? Why am I harping on this? Because to understand Revelation is to understand the fulfillment of God's word and prophecy about the person and work of Jesus Christ. This book is not just the last book of the Bible. It it, it answers all the questions. It sews the whole story together and puts an exclamation mark on the account of God's record. The New Testament has a lot of prophecies in it, but revelation is prophecy. So we're talking about prophecy or we're looking at prophecy. That's the difference in this disclosure. Now, for any Bible student, reader, scholar, whatever, if you've ever opened Revelation and you've read a commentary or gone online and looked at a commentary, danger, Will Robinson, danger. But if you do that, uh, you're going to find out quickly there's no shortage of interpretations. There are so many opinions about this book, there are so many different approaches to this book. And uh, for this reason I want to give you a couple of handles. Let me read first of all from a 1906 commentator by the name of Henry Barclay Sweet. The apocalypse offers to pastors of of the church an unrivaled store of material for Christian teaching. If only the book is approached with the assurance of its prophetic character. If you come to this book trusting the prophecy, that's what he's saying, chastened by a frank acceptance of the light which the growth of knowledge has cast and will continue to cast upon it. Don't come to this with your presuppositions about how you think are supposed to be. Come to it with a sobriety, come to as Sweet says, with the assurance of the prophetic character that God's spoken. And it's going to shed light on things, we're not going to understand at all, but it's going to help the reader. Um, just a sidebar, I uh, interviewed uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. Uh, he is a, a modern day living scholar on uh, Revelation for the podcast. It'll drop here in a few weeks. And we had a fascinating conversation for an hour on the, on, the, uh, on the web thing we used for recording the, the podcast. And I said, I wish I could just fly you up on the 20th to just do this for me. Because he's lived. He ate, slept, and drank the book. And I could not ask a question. He could not answer. I couldn't get enough in front of him. And so you'll enjoy that interview as well. Now I want to talk about a little bit, take a st- step back for your thinking. Because we need to understand a word called hermeneutics. Some of you are well familiar with this word, some have never heard about it. Let's talk about how we approach the Bible. So the hermeneutic is the way we come to the text. And not to oversimplify this, but there are two ways a person might read Revelation. It's very simplistic. From a symbolic or literal. How much of it is symbolism? How much is allegory? How much is illustrative? How much is literal? how much can we take as literally understandable, literally true. And that does divide the waters pretty quickly on how a person will look at any type of prophetic literature, especially the book of Revelation. Now there are um, trends in this whole thing. And, and the trends are how theology aligns. Some of you have, uh, I won't name names, but you like this this theologian, this pastor, this teacher, this whomever. Well, all of us fall into, like it or not, a a kind of a grouping of, this is my theological bent. You might hear about Reformed, or you might hear Anglican, or you might hear Evangelical, or any other number of handles. Um, But we need to think a little bit carefully about how we understand this text. John Walvoord writes, "...the attempts at exposition are almost without number." yet there continues the widest divergence of interpretations. This is game on. This is a complicated look unless you've got some rails. So let me give you uh, there's primarily three ways people look at this book. I'll I'll use the words historicity, idealist, preterist, and let's talk about each one of those very briefly. The historist sees Revelation as a prophetic panorama. It's something that happened historically, uh, it's, it's a current event from the past, but it's not exactly uh, what we would hold to today. It's a little different. The idealist is going to look at it from an allegorical standpoint. They're going to say, well this is symbolism and allegorical and there's no specific antichrist, this is post-millennium type things here and um, uh, you know it, it's, it's a helpful book but it's not the way we would really teach or expound it. Just a comment about post and ah-mill for just a moment. Post would be after this thousand year reign. Ah, Ah-millennial means no thousand year reign for those of you that have studied your Bible. The preterist, it occurred in the past. The Antichrist, the Roman emperor, those were things in the past. There's not a lot of agreement on who those Roman emperors might have been. Some of you who know your history might appeal to Titus in 70 A.D. when he destroyed Jerusalem and the, and the Jews were dispersed. Whether he's the Antichrist or not, that would be debated by them. And again, you're going to find typically post or amel groups. Uh, a historist, I mentioned already, the totality of church history, various popes have been called Antichrist. Um, and again, this is a post or view. And then finally, the futurists or the literalist. And these see the book as eschatology, the study of things to come, the study of the future, and the Antichrist is yet to be revealed. So it's a very high level of of that, a very high overview of that, but that's sort of the way we we look at this book. Uh, Context and theology cover a multitude of interpretational sins. If you spend time looking at the context of what somebody's written, and integrating it theologically with the rest of the counsel of God, you're in very safe lanes. So when we go back to this idealist, historist, preterist, and futurist viewpoints, you have to ask the question of these, which one of them uses that kind of hermeneutic? Now those of you that come from different backgrounds may disagree with me, I am going at a pretty high, quick level to simplify this, but I'm going to argue the only one that uses that type of hermeneutic is the last one, the futurist. That this book is written about something that's going to happen. It hasn't already happened. It hasn't been fulfilled by some emperor or some pope. It's not just completely symbolism and allegory although there, there, there is symbolism in the book. And these things are yet to come. And I, I would step back and say I need no other argument than Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and Revelation 20, 21, 22. That's all the argument I need, but others come from it in a different way. Now, you can dismiss what I think and it's fine, but I've noticed people dismiss texts that are hard or with which they disagree only. They don't dismiss a text that doesn't matter. They love talking about God's love and mercy. They don't care much for God's justice. They love talking about heaven. They don't like talking about hell. They love to talk about love and marriage unless that encroaches into a redefinition of marriage. So when people attack or disagree with something, why? They don't like it. We'll talk more about that in the end of our time together. Well, let's jump into the interpretation of this, and I'm going to give you three handles to think about when you read it. And these are really helpful. You can write them down in your Bible or on your tablet, however you're doing this. Um, the way to think of interpreting Scripture, especially prophetic Scripture or something like this, is helpful to put some handles on it. Uh, and these, these aren't unique to me. If you read 15 commentaries, five or six of them would use this in their preface. There's the apocalyptic, the prophetic, and the epistolary epistolary way of looking at literature. Apocalyptic is highly symbolic. Ezekiel chapter 1, the first 14 verses are crazy about these living beings and all this crazy stuff we read. That's apocalyptic. Prophetic, and not to get too far off on these subjects, but I'm speaking of something to happen in the future. Not all prophetic voice is something that's going to happen in the future. Sometimes a prophetic voice is to a, let's say, Jonah going to Nineveh, repent, or you're going to be destroyed. It's Isaiah calling his people back. It's John the Baptist saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. So sometimes prophecy is a moral call to a people at a time. But here I'm speaking of something in the future. So when you read um, Isaiah 53, for example, and we read about the suffering servant, you you cannot read Isaiah 53 and not wonder. This is talking about Jesus. This is 700 years in change before Jesus Christ is going to be born of Mary, and this is line by line what's going to happen to the suffering servant. A friend of mine calls Isaiah 53 the rabbi's torture chamber. Epistolary is just teaching and instruction and clarification. That would be like 1 Corinthians. It's how the Bible clarifies when you read 1 and Second Corinthians, as I told you in that big book section. Um, these are corrective letters. This is what the church is doing wrong. Has Christ been divided? I'm a Paulist, Cephas, Paul. Has Christ been divided? No. Uh, you, you come together and you're drunk for the Lord's Supper. You're sleeping with your mother-in-law for goodness sakes. Of course you don't do this. That is epistolary. That's teaching. That's corrective literature. So Revelation we have all three. In this book we have apocalyptic, that which is talking about revelatory information in the future. We have prophetic, which is also something going to happen or be fulfilled, and then teaching. Now one more word and then we're going to get back to it. The word genre. Um, I loathe to use this word. I, I don't think I've used it 10 times in 40 years of teaching because it means too many things to too many people and it's completely misused. <laughs> and it's, it's a cool word, genre. The genre of my music, you know, the genre. Um, it's an attempt to categorize things. It's an attempt to say this is classical music. This is operatic music. This is rock and roll. Now here's one for you, classic rock. Is that an oxymoron or a genre? Does that, mean, does that mean rock music from the 70s when you and I were in high school? Is that that's classic rock and roll? Or we got to go to the 60s? You see the problem I'm running into? How do you put a genre label on something? You may recall the great theological treatise, The Blues Brothers. <laughs> Elwood goes into a bar that they're sneaking in to play music under a subterfuge, and he says, what kind of music do you usually have here? And the woman behind the bar says, Oh, we got both kinds. We got country and Western. <laughs> That's a misappropriation of genre. I mean, in this town, what is it? You don't even say country and Western anymore, do you? I mean, if you, you, if you say country and Western, then what do you say? They're idiots. You say, Bless your heart. <laughs> you ain't from around here, are you? It's like, How do you pronounce Shelbyville, right? If you said what I just said, you ain't from around here, right? <laughs> So there are certain things that fail, and when we talk about genre, we want to be very careful when we look at this text. Now, is Revelation a kind of genre? The point is, the Bible is revealing things that are going to happen in the future with very specific examples of what's going on at the time. And that's why this book becomes very hard to put a label or a handle on and say the genre of Revelation is, so we give you apocalyptic prophetic and epistolary. It reveals some things, it talks about future things, and it instructs. Simple enough, have I I really confused you? I hope I haven't. But that's kind of the framework I want you to keep in mind as you look at this. Let me give you a great definition I came across. John Walbert who spent a lot of his years uh, teaching prophecy wrote, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal events which will take place, so he's talking prophetically, apocalyptically, they will take place, look at this, immediately before, during, and following the second coming of Christ. Now that's not going to make you shed a tear, that's not going to you know, make you warm and fuzzy, that is a $25 paragraph. If you understand what Walbert has said in those few words you're going to get a handle on this book we call the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That which takes place immediately before during and following the second coming of Christ. He continues, the book devotes most of its revelation to this subject in chapters 4 to 18. The second coming is given the most graphic portrayal anywhere in the Bible, followed by the millennial reign of Jesus described in chapter 20. The eternal state is then revealed in chapters 21 to 22. The purpose, obvious purpose of the book, is to complete the prophetic theme presented earlier in the prophets of the Old Testaments. And he's going to cite all of that discourse. How do we take all this thing in the Old Testament how do we take what Jesus said about the future and his life how do we put that in a package? Here it is, boom, 22 chapters. And that's why it's such an important exclamation point on the end of your Bible the way we have bound it. He continues the practical applications of it are in chapters 2 and 3 which we'll talk about a little more in a moment. On the one hand, he says, believers are exhorted to holy living. On the other hand, unbelievers are warned of judgments to come. And that's the chilling part of the book. Let's talk about these seven churches very briefly. We won't go through all of them. I want to show you five things that are common in the comments that are made to the churches. The, all, it's very clear. These are literal churches that existed or or had existed, and this is what Jesus Christ is saying to His church. First of all, Christ is the one who begins it. And each church might say He holds seven stars, He's the first and the last, He's the one with the sharp two-edged sword, He's the Son of God, His eyes are like fires of flame. So Christ is identified with an interesting description. Secondly, we have a commendation. That commendation may cut two ways, but it's like, I know your deeds, or I know your tribulation, or I know your poverty. Then we have a rebuke. Ephesus is the most chilling one, you left your first love. And on they go. Most of you have been exposed to this. And then we have an exhortation. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. You'll be tested. Hold fast. Wake up. And then we have a promise. And every time in all seven churches the promise is to the overcomer, the one who overcomes. So the messages to the churches, while unique, they have this framework, this is what Jesus Christ is saying to each one of His churches. Now the the chilling part of this is, as a Christian, you read these seven churches and you can't help but identify with one or more of them. How many of us in this room would not raise your hand but say, you know there's times I've lost my first love for Christ. I, I don't love Him, and I don't mean the emotional thing. I, I don't have the same intentionality, the same discipline, the same I want to get up every day and be in the Word. I interviewed Scott Lindsay this past week, he's works with Logos we're doing a little series on the Bible and why it's important and trying to wrap that up together. And um, Scott cited a study I've heard him cite before about uh, a large study sample in the U.S. People who read the Bible one time a week and they had these indices like loneliness, depression, pornography all these things that people struggle with. If they read the Bible once a week it had no effect. Twice a week no effect. Three times a week no effect. Four times a week the data shifts five times a week, it shifts again. People who are lonely, depressed, angry, sullen, into pornography, having affairs, living a dual life, if they're not in the Word but a little dip, it does not affect your life. But for those people that open the Bible and spend some time in it, there is a direct corollary. I just say it real simply, keep your nose in the book. You will never waste time in the Word. Ever. I don't care if it's five minutes in the morning, I'm not a morning person Michael, okay do it in the evening. I'm not an evening person Michael, do it midday. This is where small groups are so important. Because if you're doing something together you're more likely to do it. I have a reading group on Mondays, we're reading a couple of books on history as I speak and I'm a good reader, I'm a disciplined person, I'm a pretty disciplined guy, I'm a whole lot more disciplined if I know tomorrow at noon I'm going to get on a WebEx with nine other guys, most of whom are a whole lot smarter than me, and we're going to talk about the 80 or 100 pages we read that week. I'm more likely, by the way this is why education, education is paying someone else to make you do something you would never do on your own. <laughs> Amen? That's all you're doing. You're paying a teacher, you're paying a schedule, you're paying a to make you do something on a deadline that 99 out of 100 of us would never. Now, there's that one person that always ruins the bell curve. They always, they always, you know, they're studying, they're, study, they're di- You know, I had a friend that taught himself Greek and Hebrew. I hate him. I hate him, you know. Um, I, you know I had to go to seminary and pay a lot of money to learn Greek and Hebrew. But, you know, some people are like that. God forgive them. Each of these apply. And if you read through those seven churches I would bet even though I'm not a betting man that something off there stings you and I just mentioned one, did you lose your first love? The the great thing about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is He doesn't pace the floor, He doesn't tap His foot waiting for you to wake up and get your Bible. He's not mad at you. He loves you. He loves you. And I don't like the word He waits for us because that sounds, it sounds condescending. He's the God of the universe. I would say He is available to you and me. We don't have to make an appointment. You don't have to call this assistant. You just open the Word and you turn down the distractions and you turn down the noise and you get a pad in a real Bible. A real Bible. Not technology. Technology will get you into other things get a real Bible and a couple of pens and read and write questions and take notes and write a prayer. One time a week, two, three, four you'll see a difference. It is that. Simple men and women. You don't have to go to seminary, you just need to get your nose in the book. Revelation chapter 1 verses 4-8 through John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To Him who loves us and released us from our sins by His blood. There are 15 sermons in those verses. There is so much in what John simply writes. One of the things when you, if you do ever go to seminary or study Greek, Johannine Greek is, the, is so easy. You think you can read Greek, you, you, you take a couple years and this is so easy to translate John! And you get to Paul, I give up. You know, but it's a whole different ballgame. It's so easy, but look what he says. It may be easy, but it's deep. Johannine theology is rich. I love the phrase, for him who is, who was, and who is to come. He's always existed. This goes, by the way, smack in the face of cults and false teachers who say Jesus was born at a particular time and He is a little God. He is a man. He's a human God. No. He was, He is, and is to come. He eternally exists. The firstborn from the dead. Ah, see? That's not true. Other people were raised from the dead. That's not what that passage says. Firstborn in the New Testament is almost always primacy primacy. How many of you have a firstborn son or are a firstborn son? Like it or not, you get it all. Right? You're the firstborn. You get all the responsibility and you get all the blame for your siblings. Right? Or you are, you are expect more of you. Don't you love that? We expect more of you because you're the firstborn. How do the other siblings look at the firstborn? Oh they love him or her so much. They hate the firstborn, right? Until you become adults and God willing you become great friends. It's illustrative the firstborn had a primacy role in antiquity, across cultures, not just Judaism. In the Middle East a firstborn son was what it was all about. I've told you this story many times in my travels to Nigeria where boy did I learn theology. I was with some wonderful people that love Jesus Christ and when a woman has a firstborn son, if her son's name is Joseph, Yusuhu in Hausa, she is no longer Tabitha she's Mama Yusuhu. From then on she is the name of her firstborn son as a badge of honor and pride and endearment that she had a boy first. Like it or not in the culture it's important to them. Just keep that in mind when you read the Bible because the firstborn had a role in a relationship that was important in God's structure. So when we read the firstborn from the dead, he's not saying he was the firstborn only ever raised from the dead because there were other resurrections. He's saying he has primacy in this. Why? Because he overcame it. On we could go. To him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. Oh, we should read that every morning. He loves you. And He released you from your sins. How many of us have a gnawing guilt in our stomach, or in our heart, or in our head on a regular basis? Guilt and shame can wear you out. The what ifs and if onlys can just make you feel horrible. One observation I will make about COVID and all this, you know, staying home stuff for the past 15 years now. Um, People have grown internal, they have grown afraid, and they live with a lot of guilt and shame right now. Because you're not busy, you're not in the course of life, you're not in the commerce of people, you're not coming and going and responsible and you can show up with your underwear and go on WebEx or whatever, nobody knows. And before long that isolation starts to take its toll. He loves us. He's released us from our sins by His blood. Don't forget it costs a lot. Don't forget the cost of His blood. But what an important reminder. Verse 6, "...and He has made us to be a kingdom priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen." Behold, He's coming in the clouds, by the way. In your New American Standard in most Bibles when you have all caps it is quoting something in the Old Testament. That's why the translators do that, to make it easy for you. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's kind of interesting. Everybody's going to see who he is, even the Roman guards who put the nails in his hands and his feet and the one who put the lance in his rib cage. Everybody's going to see him. Even those. What's John saying? the most egregious person to everyone else is going to see this risen king. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That one kind of caught me off guard the first few times I read it. Wouldn't they celebrate over him? No. Because when you look upon the face of the Savior and what he did for you, there will be a mourning not for him, but for what you and I did to him. But it doesn't stop there. So it is. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let me give you some lessons and then I want to read one other passage for you. So let's let's talk about these in some sort of an organized way. Number one, God will ultimately and finally deal with sin. Um, That's your sin and the world's sin and all sin. I think, again, depending on how you were raised, if you're uh, susceptible to guilt and shame and uh, maybe you had uh, a challenging childhood, maybe other people affected you, maybe you were abused or a victim of other people's sinfulness, take a deep breath. He will ultimately and finally deal with it. Secondly, he will ultimately and finally save his own. Those who know Christ are secure in Christ forever. I find it striking in these passages that talk about forever and ever, amen. It's another thing we read over so quickly. Forever and ever, amen is eternality. It never stops. We are so time bound. We are so uh, controlled by what time we get up, where we have to be. You go to the airport, you've got to get there a certain time early enough so you can get through TSA and so forth and so on. We live and die by a clock in the main. And yet our life is a vapor. Our life is fog on a mirror. All I have is smoke that goes up, and I don't mean this to be another cheery Michael sermon. I don't mean to discourage you. I mean to remind you: this life is short. This life is short. I'm not trying to discourage young men and women, not to enjoy your life and enjoy raising kiddos. I'm not trying to do. That. I'm just trying to remind you: once in a while, stop, take your pulse, take your blood pressure. Go. This life is fleeting, and there, there's an eternity awaiting solemn morning to persist as long as it is day. If you do not know Christ today is the day. is the greatest spiritual transaction ever offered in the universe and people resist. This is why I love talking to my friend Bill Howard so much about why people are unwilling to talk about God or unwilling to trust Christ or they have all these excuses or they got burned or they had a bad experience in their church growing up. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I think, I think there's two fundamental things here. You either worship God or you worship yourself. I really think that's the bottom line. You worship God or you worship the way you think things ought to be. Our dear brother um, John Stott, with the Lord, I'm sure, as sure as we can be, changed his theology as he died about annihilation. There's no hell. God would not be cruel and send people to hell. He's merciful. Other theologians change their view. Well, There's a second chance when you die. Isn't there an opportunity after you die? You can one more time get to hear the gospel? No. That's not what the Bible teaches. Oh, Michael, you're judgmental, you're harsh. Well, you can say that about me. Your arguments here. You either worship God or you worship yourself. You either create God in your own image. Or you submit to what he's given us. And ain't those parts of the Bible I do understand, don't understand that bother me. It's those parts I do understand, said Twain. And when I understand judgment is real and true, then I have a problem. Finally, Revelation 19, let me just read this with a couple of comments. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. There again is the homage to women who wear white wedding dresses. Ephesians 5 says the same thing. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that for I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren Behold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God! For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, on his head are many diadems, And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. I love that line of Scripture. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nation's and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And here it is again, and on His robe and on His thigh He has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no other God. There's no other king. There's no other way. There's no other person who can forgive your sin. There's no other person that can bring you in to inherit the kingdom of God. Three of our four children were really in, big into sports. And my son played um, soccer for a while and, um, and basketball and other sports. But there was, this, there was this kid on his team named Vinny. Vinny was an athlete. Vinny's dad and this boy had a relationship where when his dad came home from work, Vinny and him played soccer and basketball and baseball till dinnertime every day. This kid ate, slept, and drank sports and he had a smile the size of Dallas. He was always happy. He was the fastest guy. He was a little tiny guy. And it was very tempting every time we got on the soccer field to yell, give it to Vinny! Give it to Vinny! Because nine out of ten times when we gave it to Vinny, you know what happened? We scored. We scored. Now there were other kids on that team that wanted to kick the ball. They wanted to play a little bit, right? You want to be, everybody have time in the field. Parents, let Vinny play. Give it to Vinny. Why in the world would you give it to my son who can barely run, it's not coordinated? Give it to Vinny. (laughs) And Vinny had this smile that never stopped. And I often thought about if we view Jesus Christ not as a Vinny but as the King, the Savior the one who forgives, why wouldn't you give it to Jesus Christ? Why would you give it to an also-ran? Why would you make up your own religion? Why would you think you're going to get to heaven by doing X or not doing Y? Why would you not give it to Vinny? Why wouldn't you give it to the God, King of the universe? He loves you. He's given you a book that's unparalleled on the planet. It's not what he would say if he was here, it's what he is saying because he is here. Get your nose in the book. Get your nose in the book. Get to know the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true sovereign. If you don't know Christ, it's very simple. You put your trust in Christ and Christ alone to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. He lived, He died, He was buried. He came back from the dead. He overcame death to prove His power not over just physical death but over sin. And more importantly for you and me, he now offers that eternal life to any and all who put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. It is that simple. It is that profound and it will change your life. Won't make everything perfect, won't make it easy, won't make you rich, won't make you handsome, won't make you beautiful or skinny. he will change your eternal life. It'll change your eternal destinations. And you'll find a joy and a peace and a sense of life that you're not going to find anywhere else. Any other system will not provide it. Come to Christ. Put your trust in Him.
0: Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Chad Cates.